Well, welcome back, beautiful mamas, to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth podcast with Nicola Lay and my name is Shari Lyon. We just wanted to take this moment to say thank you for joining us on this journey as we release these episodes to support you more on your journey towards a positive birth. And we have some great episodes coming up in the future. And we have some great people we've lined up to interview. So we are trying as much as possible to get these episodes out to you. Nicola and I are super busy at the moment. August, July, July, August, September are some of the busiest months for us when it comes to supporting women in pregnancy because it's when all of you who are due in spring are are coming and learning for from us. So it has been a full on year. I can't even believe that we are already in August. But something that I just wanted to quickly also jump in and let you know is that Nicola and I both have our own programs. Um, I obviously teach the Hypnobirthing Australia program through live online courses. So that is available to any of you worldwide. Um, I've also just released my own journey to birth online course. So this is just a very short course. This is not a hypnobirthing course. This is just an introduction to childbirth course that I put together um, for only $97. And Nicola is just about to release her own pregnancy program. But even if you've had your baby, you can work with Nicola through preconception, during uh, pregnancy, as well as after the birth with the breath. Honestly, if you are feeling anxious or you just would like some support, then I we want you to know that we're here for you. So let's jump in to today's episode. Today, this is episode 39 and we have interviewed a beautiful lady. Her name is Catherine Bell. Catherine is known as the birth cartographer and she's an author of The Birth Map, Boldly Going Where No Birth Plan Has Gone Before. She created the concept of birth maps to facilitate communication and aid confident navigation of the maternity landscape. And after a second child was born, she trained as a doula and breastfeeding educator as much to learn about mothering for herself as well as to support others. And this led to her becoming a huge birth advocate and consumer representative. And I was able to attend one of Catherine's birth mapping workshops. And I just love the concept of kind of getting rid of the word of the birth plan or even birth preferences. And and really, this is what both Nicola and I do is help support you to map out and understand what your options are. So we really hope you enjoy this episode. Please feel free to share this episode. If you are interested in any of our programs, I'll put the link in the show notes. Let us help you prepare for your positive birth. Welcome to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth Podcast with your hosts, Shari Lyon and Nicola Lay. Together, we bring over 30 years of experience in working with women and partners through education, breathing, mindfulness, and evidence-based information, and nurturing you through this transformation into motherhood. Join us on this journey as we connect with women and partners, mentoring, supporting, and navigating the ups and downs of becoming parents. Well, today on the podcast, we have Catherine Bell, who is a birth cartographer and has created the concept of birth mapping. So welcome, Catherine, to the Nurture Hub Pregnancy and Birth Podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Hello. Hello. So we met um, a few months ago. Um, I booked in and did one of your birth cartography, birth mapping workshops, and I just came away from it feeling like... This is it. This is like the answer that I have been looking for in how to even explain to the clients that I support and teach on how they can put down what they would like for their birth, but also being open to possible changes that may come up and that the destination they want to get to is having a positive experience. And the way that you just shared your birth mapping I just want to share it with everyone. So that's why we want I like we wanted to to bring you on and also Nicola has also signed up up for the course as well. Can't wait. So excited. So mm. can you please explain us share your story please. We'd I'd love how you share your story and how you you yourself became a birth cartographer. Well, it all started back in for me about 20 
07 when I became a mum and realised that my birth plan, which was have a baby, (laughs) didn't quite cut it. I had had all these assumptions that because I had a normal healthy pregnancy I was just going to go to the hospital and I have a midwife look after me and have this amazing experience where it was all celebrated and fanfare and like as it should be because you're doing something absolutely incredible you're bringing a whole person into the world and it wasn't like that at all um I was placed on a conveyor belt and issued instructions at key points along the way. Uh, We're going to swab your vagina, Catherine, um, for GBS and no explanation of what that is. It's just a routine test. This is what you do. Off you go. And dutifully, you do. Mm. Oh, okay. Off we go. Here's your referral for your next scan or your next blood test and off you go. No real explanation of what's going on, but they must know, right? You know, this is you know, it's maternity care after all. And then in getting to the hospital to have the baby, realizing that you get a random midwife and the midwife can only stay with you as long as it's their shift. And then the next midwife comes along. So there wasn't a continuity of you're repeating your story as you go along and information was variable from one care provider to the next. So for my next birth, my birth plan had a little bit more detail in it. It was more like um, have a baby and say no to some things. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was really still very fixated on this assumption that I'd have a normal, straightforward birth, which I did. But as I was talking to other mums, they would say, gee, I wish I'd known. Nobody told me this. I didn't know that. I didn't know that if I got GBS positive, that I'd have to have antibiotics in the labour and that in having antibiotics, that this would also happen and that this would also happen. And so I started doula training between baby number um, two and baby number three because I thought there's a lot more to this gig than seems, you know, it's not enough just to be a mum or indeed a mum who's already had babies. There's something else going on in modern birthing that is beyond just having a baby. And when I did the doula training, all this knowledge came to me that I thought, this is my birthright. How do I not know this? And then I did the ABA, the Australian Breastfeeding Association training, because I felt there was so much about breastfeeding that women should just know. And Here I had to do a a year-long course in order to get the basic information that every woman should know. And, of course, once I had that information, there was no way any woman was going to talk to me and not have that information. It's like, you have to know this. This is important information. And so I started documenting all the questions that I wish I'd asked and that the mums who were with my, in my mums group had wished they'd asked. And it was initially going to be for my birth plan template that I was using as a doula and then I realized that that template was really long and I accidentally wrote a book (laughs) it's like like, whoa that's a that's a lot of questions and that's when I also realized that the book I'd been searching for in my first pregnancy in particular was the book that I'd just accidentally written. What I needed was the questions, not answers, not a how-to, not this is the way things will be and this is what you should do. I needed questions. Here is some questions to ask so that I could determine for myself what it was um, that I needed to know, where my knowledge gaps were, And so as I shared those questions with mums, originally it was just a little booklet um, printed at Officeworks. Uh, I bound every single one of them myself, Um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) going with the binder and making the clunky noise as everything goes. It was a lot of fun um, putting them together, but it got to a point where I'm like, wow, that's an awful lot of books that I'm now binding. I probably should look at different um, printing and publishing options. And then it became 
the book that is now available today. And it, it was the questions um, plus some information about what makes an informed decision because that's something that also came up was this idea that um, an informed decision is about information. If the care provider gives you information, then there's an obvious conclusion that you draw. And there was this idea that if I tell you X, you will do Y. So the recommended um, course of action will just you'll just agree. So that's informed consent. I've informed you and now you consent. And so I started to get a bit frustrated with consent mm. because it assumes a yes. And when you're in that conveyor belt approach to um, birth uh, care and you don't know what your alternatives are, you have to consent because it's presented to you in that way. So throughout this process with um, the birth cartography and Ashari experience, we don't talk about consent in birth cartography. We talk about decisions. Mm. So when we hear, I need your consent, what we actually reframe in our mind is decision. I have options. What are my options and what questions can I ask? So the, the whole concept was born out of a need to know and that I felt the gap in maternity care was that we are not giving women the means to know. They need to be honoured and considered sensible and capable enough to actually be able to ask questions gather that information, put it into their own context and draw a conclusion that's right for them rather than assuming to say yes because that's what you're expected to do. Why bother with the whole consent process if we're just going to uh, be doing what we're told? It's a little bit insulting. To It's an illusion of choice um, to be, thing, be told though. that you have options. Yeah, that's the thing though. Do they actually want us to know our options? I don't know if they do. And I know that we need to we need to trust our medical caregivers, but so many times I have my clients contacting me and the way things are said, and it happened to me in my own birth, they don't really want you to know your options because they want you to conform to the routine practices that they're used to doing every single day. And that's where... Um, you know, if you don't know your options, you don't have any. Mm. So it makes it very hard. Like, just like you experienced in your first birth, you trust, you go in, you're advised, you kind of are made to feel, you know, you do this because this is what everyone does. And sometimes even the language that they used is very, um, you know, in, incites fear and coercive in the way of going, well, if it was my decision, I would do this for the safety of my baby. Yes. And then that makes women drop into a place of, well, if I don't do this, then something's going to happen. And this is the problem that and I get frustrated with that they don't want you to know all of, all, all of your options. So, Catherine, um, can you give me what you see as a regular scenario in the whole um, op, no option? Um, what would be something that you you sort of have helped with before, or that you see that comes up a lot? One of the one of the big triggers that sort of envelopes this whole concept is this idea that all that matters is a healthy baby, yes. and so there's this idea that you have to be the good mother, the good patient, self-sacrificing. And there's a combination of being groomed, if you'll permit me to, to, to say that, from a very young age to do as we're told by our care provider. They know better than us because they've got all those qualifications, but they don't know us necessarily. And pregnancy in particular is not an illness. It's a normal life event that's that's taking place and if we keep looking for problems we can usually find them and a, a part of the reason that that comes up is from the nocebo effect which is the opposite of a placebo the belief that something is going to go wrong and that can come about because we don't fully trust our care provider or we don't 
fully trust our own self because we've been trained to believe that pregnancy is dangerous, birth is dangerous, we're going to blow up if we don't do these tests, something will go wrong if we don't do the test. But what we find is often in testing, we start to manifest the problem um, because we're nervous. So when we go into our care provider's appointment, we're already anxious. So of course, our blood pressure is going to elevate. And so then, oh, there's a problem with your blood pressure. We now need to monitor that. Or as um, we hear a lot about with the gestational diabetes test, they've been playing around with the thresholds. In the, the 10 years that it took me to have all of my babies, that threshold lowered every single time. And in, funnily enough, more and more women were being diagnosed as having gestational diabetes. Is this real? Is this not real? Um, what, are the, what are the ramifications of that diagnosis? Increases in induction being offered. Uh, and a lot of women just dutifully doing that because the alternative is you're putting your baby at risk and all that matters is a healthy baby healthy really being alive and not considering the mum so if we've got a mother who wants to have a vaginal birth but we don't explain to her that having that epidural puts you on a pathway that increases your risk of an assisted delivery which increases your risk of a third or fourth degree injury which increases your risk of peeing yourself uncontrollably for potentially the rest of your life compared to uh, what you're, you know, or let's take a step back. What are my alternatives to epidural then? Because the epidural is painted as this, you've got nothing to prove. There's no gold medals. Why would you experience the pain? You don't have to. Um, so it's really downplayed. But when we put that into the context of if you have an epidural, there's also a catheter and a drip and you're going to be on your back. Labor might take a bit longer. You might need some assistance getting the baby out. Maybe we'll make a different decision. What are my alternatives? Maybe it is okay to experience birth. Maybe gas is okay. Maybe water is okay. If we don't talk about all those wonderful options, hypnobirthing. I can get into my own mind. I can use smell. There are so many ways we can make birth an amazing experience that not only produces a really positive outcome for the baby, but an incredible outcome for the mum. Can you imagine a world where women are coming through birth feeling incredible? They can do anything. They're going to move into motherhood feeling amazing, making positive decisions, feeling like they can absolutely do this. They're reducing their risk of postnatal depression, their feelings of not being able to cope because, hey, I can do this. Not only do I know where to find out information, but I know that I am more than capable of doing something. And if there is a problem, I know who to go to and who I can trust to get that information rather than assuming that I'm faulty in the first place and can't do this on my own. And I think that we see the same for partners. Um, when we go through this birth cartography process, partners also gain that confidence to be a better supporter rather than wanting the machine that goes ping because there's some reassurance or safety in, in that, it's like a safety net, but it's an illusion because what we're doing is failing to step into our power. And Shari might remember this one from the course. It's not with great power comes great responsibility. With great responsibility comes great power. When we accept responsibility and own our choices, we become powerful. And that's an incredible feeling to have. 
And it's such a great way of putting it. And I can I just tell you, I I do share what I've learned from you. This is now exactly how I share it as well in my classes in trying to say to them, like, it's time we take back responsibility for our own decisions. But you can only do that by assessing the risk. And everyone assesses risk differently. And that's okay. There's no right or wrong way to birth your baby. It's what's right for you within the assessment of what's risky or what's not on both sides of okay if we wait what are the risks with that but then we also need to look at what are the risks of the intervention itself and that's not really what is fully being explained by medical caregivers can i just say though there are sorry there are good medical caregivers out there i'm not saying that there are Absolutely. not but like with the system it's the system, right? The system, like you said, wants to just keep those women on that conveyor belt, tick them through up oh, 41 weeks. Okay. This is where now they are also coming from a place of risk as well, obviously. And if you don't know that you can say no, then it's just going to end up being down a road or a journey that they were not prepared for whatsoever, which then in turn can come out of that experience feeling disappointed, traumatized physically and emotionally as well. So yeah, I, I love the way that you, you explain that. So thank you for sharing that with me because I think it's such a, a great point to put across to, to women and parents and um, that it's, they need to take back the responsibility mm. for themselves. And I love the fact that you bring the partners into this because it's a hundred percent their responsibility as well whether it's your partner, your, your doula or your, or your, um, you know, your, your parent that's with you, you know, your mother. Um, I think it's being able to understand the questions in all the moments, because as a birthing mum, you can't be on the outside of the cave. This is how I was always explain when I'm doing my work is it when you're on the outside of the cave, trying to control your own birth, you can't actually get into your own birth and step out of your own way. So you do need to have a map ahead and everyone needs to decide that map as it plays out in all the moments. That's right. What we do with the, the purpose of building a map is that we create signposts along the way. So we recognise when a detour is necessary or when the detour is being offered because of the convenience of the system. So we can uh, understand that um, being offered induction because uh, that suits the care provider for a number of reasons or it's nearly Christmas or it's just a routine. They're offering me this induction because it's based on some sort of sweeping population level recommendation but I have a choice let's have a look at my circumstances how do I feel about the risk what is the actual risk what is the relative risk and you can say actually I'm really comfortable waiting another week I'm more than happy to accept that risk it doesn't bother me let's keep going some people will be looking to induction because it might mean that they have to change their birth location. So if you're looking at birthing in a rural low-risk hospital, they might not be able, due to their policy, allow you to birth in their centre after 41 weeks. So then the choice becomes not about your physical well-being, but about the circumstances surrounding that. If you can't birth in that hospital, do you have to travel three hours away to the the higher the the tertiary hospital that might be okay if you know people in the area you've got somewhere to stay and you can manage um, the circumstances but for other families it might be a case of okay if we get to uh, 40 plus 5 we're going to book in that induction because we really need to make sure that we're staying near home so the, the things that influence our decisions are often not just associated with the pregnancy, our circumstances, our level of support, our religion, um, anything, it, working life, finances. There are so many factors that come into play for that individual, just as the birthing location is factoring in different management 
requirements. And that might be that they know that this particular month, they've got 40 women who are due to birth, but they can only manage five of them at a time. So how are we going to try and spread that out? If we can induce a whole bunch of them towards the beginning of the month, then that that really helps us manage um, our staff. And particularly in current circumstances, a lot of people are making decisions based on staying home as long as possible, or trying to avoid um, the system if they if they can um, and they'll only enter the system under um, requirements where they actually feel that they're going to need medical support very individual decisions that are being made and influenced by uh, outside circumstances so what we create is a series of signposts that have an if this then that this is the best pathway if these are the circumstances and that's where it's a, a case of no one way. There's no better pathway. There's the best pathway in the circumstances that are presented. So when we create our map, we're not making any assumptions about which pathway we're going to move along. We might have one that we feel is most likely. That's our expected pathway. And for most, most women, that's going to be a spontaneous, straightforward pathway because there's nothing to assume that they wouldn't be. For other women, they know that that pathway is going to be a cesarean. So their expected pathway is based on that cesarean and making it the best possible birth, because this is, this is the birth of their baby, no matter what. Let's make it as beautiful as we can. Our, our contingency for an expected cesarean would be, what if I go into labour before the cesarean date? So let's have a consideration of what that scenario might look like. And, of course, that's going to depend on the reasons for the cesarean and the condition of the baby, the condition of the mother. Do we know if there's um, any medical issues that would make that a particularly dangerous scenario? Or is that just a case of, oh, well, we'll just carry on then because it's just a, a cesarean that's being scheduled because the first birth was a cesarean. So, all right, looks like it's going to be a potential VBAC then, but we're moving to the hospital fairly quickly and it will become what's considered an emergency cesarean rather than a planned cesarean simply because labour has already started. So I break it down um, in terms of cesareans into four different types of cesarean because those scenarios look very different. So when we're considering those pathways, a before labour cesarean and an after-labour caesarean both has an emergency aspect where things are actually happening because they're critical, but then there's also an aspect where things are actually still really calm and there's not actually a problem. Uh, it's just a procedure that's going, going forward that we can still have a lot of control with and a lot of involvement in. And so it's really important to break down the pathways so that we can make really informed decisions because the circumstances will be different. And if the baby needs to go to, to the NICU and there's a separation from mum and Bob, what are we going to do in that scenario? That's a really good backup plan to have in place because it means that if you do end up on that pathway, it's not as stressful because you're not making it up as you go along. You're enacting the emergency plan. And that's a really handy one. If you've got somebody who is hassling you to be involved, you can say you're our backup. You have the most important job of all. And that can help them to, to stand back and say, yeah, actually, I'll be at home putting meals in your freezer, giving the house a nice deep clean before you come home. And if you need me to come in because of separation of mother and baby, I'm there. I have the most important job. And so that can help alleviate some tensions. Of course, in COVID times, it's a little bit easier to um, keep people who are not welcome into your space out because obviously there are limitations on how many support people you can have. And so that's another element of consideration that's got nothing to do with the physiology of birth and everything to do with the circumstances surrounding it. What are the rules at your hospital? What, what are you going to do in the event that you can't have your doula with you? Is it a choice between doula and partner? And so you can have that conversation to work out what, what is the best way forward in terms of ensuring that we get the, the most positive experience. And a positive experience 
is determined by the woman herself. If she says it was a good birth, then it was a good birth. If she says it was bad, it was bad. Let's talk about that. Wow, there's so many things to think about, isn't it? And especially at the moment in this time, in this time at the moment, what we're seeing a lot of up here in Queensland is um, women getting to hospital um, in 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 labour, and they're not allowing them to progress into another room until they agree to a vaginal examination. And a lot of these women have really, you know, don't want to have that. That's not part of their plan in their minds that that's not what they want to do. And those are the hospitals are now saying, well, you'll have to go home. And it puts people, uh, these beautiful women who are always vulnerable into a very difficult situation where they're then being coerced into having a vaginal examination. And I've coached women in the moment at that time and asking that partner whoever's with them to question this because in what any other time in our life is it acceptable for someone to say it up to us before you're allowed to do something we have to stick our fingers in your vagina Mm. so why is it Mm. that in birth it is allowed or acceptable to do that to Mm. us as women and I'm speaking on my from my own experience because Mm. Again, I I did the hypnobirthing course. Um, It was 10 years ago, so things have definitely changed. But I remember going into my birth in active labor. My surges were coming every two, three minutes, lasting a minute. And my caregiver said, okay, I'm just going to have to check you now because I need to see how far along you were. It was in no way a uh, question to me it was no way asking me if I was okay with that but because I was in an environment that it was not my environment I felt I was in her environment this was her workplace this is what she did every day I felt I didn't have a choice so in that moment I didn't question and we shouldn't have to question when we are in labor. We should not have to advocate for ourselves when we are in labor. And so I, uh, I agree. Well, I'm not gonna say I agreed. I, I was, <laughs> did what, you know, I was told I laid on the bed and I, I remember I just felt so uncomfortable laying on my back and she started to do the examination. And then I started to have a surge and I, hated the vaginal examination for me it was very painful and I asked her to stop and she told me that she couldn't stop and didn't Mm. and do you know what it's been all these years later that I now reflect back and go oh my gosh that was Mm. like at what any other time if I had even if I allowed them at first to put their fingers in my vagina and then ask them to stop and they didn't why is that so acceptable? And this is where it's so hard for for women, even if they are educated. I felt I was educated. Mm. But when you get in there and the way that things are said to you is not asking you questions. It is telling you this is what we're doing to you. When you're in such that vulnerable state, it's really hard. And I don't think my husband, because it just has it has become normal. In our in our birth culture, in our Western world, it has become normal that you get vaginal examinations, that you have routine practices. So women don't actually look at that as an intervention. It's not explained to them as an intervention. It has become acceptable and normal because they have done it for so long. And until I now really explain this to my clients, they sit there and they're like, I've never really thought about it like that. Mm. Because a lot of the time, like we want to ask ourselves questions, but no one asks us what we want. No one ever said, what kind of birth do you want? How can I help you achieve that birth? It was, yes, as you said, Catherine, here is, you know, here's your your referral to go and get the GB test. Here is the referral for the scan. Here is, there was, I don't think ever anyone that actually asked me what kind of experience I wanted and how I wanted that to look. And it wasn't until I did the hypnobirthing that I was like, I then started to, to realize what I wanted. But even though I had my preferences written down in that moment, it was not honored or discussed or yeah. And it kind of saddens me that I allowed that to happen. 
And I think most women, if they look back at their births, they've had some trauma forming moments for sure. And it probably is a, a thing that they kind of put to the back of the mind and hope it goes away. Um, I know that I've got many moments for me that have been in those moments, you know, that time. And I remember Anthony saying, are they allowed to, to talk to you like that? And I'm like, I, I don't think so, but you know, you might need to say something next time. Um, yeah. And I don't think often, you know, particularly when you go into your second or your third birth, that you start to realize on oh, next time, I'm not going to allow that to happen. So and that's exactly what happened to me. My second birth, I ended up having a home birth. I did not want to be confronted within that system. Like I was last birth. I still look at my first birth as a, as a beautiful, empowering, great birth. And I think what I also felt I came out of that feeling empowered because I didn't know that that was wrong at that mm. moment. It hasn't been until years later that I've actually really thought about it and gone oh my gosh that was like obstetric rape (laughs) and you know and but that's where for my second birth I made that effort with my I had a known midwife obviously having a home birth and I expressed to her and I said I do not want vaginal examinations and she was so respectful and I said only if you feel that there is if labor is stalled and we need to find out some information. She did not ask me once. I did not have one vaginal examination. I try to examine myself, but that's okay (laughs) because it's my fingers and my vagina. So, and I, you know, (laughs) I'm allowed to do that. I couldn't feel anything. I didn't know what I was feeling, but I did have (laughs) one vaginal examination. My labor progressed beautifully and I had the most beautiful, like, and that's where, you know, when, when you say Catherine, like I came out of it feeling like I could do anything. And that's where, again, like birth changes you and, I think we've all come from our own experiences that this is like, I need other women to know this and to show them that they do have the power within them to make the decisions and to say no, or, or to even ask. And I even say to women in my classes, I'm like, you can ask for a vaginal examination. If you want to know something, it's your body. You can ask for one. I'm not saying that you have to say no to vaginal examinations. I want you to know though, that we should be respected and it should be, we should be asked if they can do it rather than it's an expectation that they need to know how far you know dilated we are because it doesn't really benefit us <laughs> that's right and you you um you dropped a word a little while ago preferences and this is a big part of the whole story we are framed with the plan and then preferences and those those are the two big ones that you hear plans um they're a bit fixed and you know they're not very flexible so how about we call them our birth preferences instead and sometimes you might hear birth wishes and the thing about preferences and wishes is that they're easy to push aside they're not they're not decisions they're an idea a thought a preference and you can prefer to drive a ferrari but if you haven't got the means to buy a Ferrari, you're not going to buy you. It's just not going to happen. So it's not realistic. A preference doesn't have to be based in anything that's realistic. Whereas a decision, a choice has to be based in something realistic. So we might have to choose something that in an ideal world, we don't want to have. And that, that choice might be a cesarean. Here is a presentation of facts. There's an issue with your baby. Maybe it's in a transverse lie or there's an issue with you. Maybe you've got preeclampsia. That cesarean is starting to look like a really good option. You can still say no. It's still a choice, but you're balancing it up based on fairly knowable outcomes. If you don't have the cesarean, this is what's going to happen. You can make that choice because you have a right to choose even if it results in death or in injury. And someone might make that choice due to religious or very, very firm beliefs or because um, it's just what feels right for them. You know, that, that's actually their right to make that choice. Whereas other people, when they're presented with that information, I don't want a cesarean, but I can accept it knowing that it's the, the best possible outcome 
for for what we're aiming for and so then they can go into that cesarean feeling reassured that they've done the right thing for them and their baby and then they can know what it's going what it's going to look like afterwards so sometimes we're making choices that aren't our ideal but they're still our choice it's our birth our way no matter what and we get to fully own the no matter what that's that that is our right to make those choices and so for some people the vaginal exams are really reassuring there's this illusion that it lets you know where you're at gives you some kind of timeline Um, but sometimes when we go okay let's take that feeling and explore it let's have a look at what we actually can find out about vaginal exams how much information do we actually get as it turns out all we get is a snapshot because you could go from zero to 10 in three minutes, you know, you could, you could sit on five for a long time. So it's, it's really quite meaningless. But what are we doing? We're introducing bacteria potentially into the vagina. And if you've had a GBS positive um, test, are we actually increasing risk? So then we can put that in balance. And suddenly, our decisions are going to be different because we've now got more information and we can weigh that up based on what happens down the track. If we accept an epidural, we're also saying yes to a catheter and a drip. And we're also putting ourselves at an increased chance of having to birth on our back and then being tired and then needing assistance to have the baby out. It's not a guaranteed pathway, but it's an increased risk and we've got to weigh that up. For some women, the if if this then that for the epidural they might say if I reach absolutely I've exhausted all my um, hypnobirthing and my uh, I've had my water birth my, my uh, water labour and I've tried all my other things and I'm still labouring and I'm getting really tired then I will accept an epidural and for some women that epidural is enough to break tension in the room give them a bit of a break they relax. And they go on to birth within a few hours beautifully, absolutely beautifully. So there are a couple of options along that pathway. But if you know why and when on your terms, you can own that decision and come out the other side feeling really powerful. I actually had um, an anaesthetist in my course about two months ago and he actually um, expressed and said, you know, as an anaesthetist, it's hard for me when a woman is screaming for an epidural, she knows nothing about it. And I try and go in and explain the risks to her. She's not in a right frame of mind to understand the potential risks. So therefore, are they making an informed choice? Well, no. So he said, if you are able to talk to an anaesthetist before your birth, not that you're saying you're guaranteeing you're going to have an epidural, but at least have them come in and explain what's involved in the procedure, the risks that it's not guaranteed that then that's when, if you, if you get to that point in your labor where you make that detour and you make that decision, you are actually making a decision because you've been informed in a moment where you can be rational and analytical within that that information that you've been given and i thought that's such a great um like advice um i know it's not always available for women maybe birthing in a public system to just have an anaesthetist but you can ask that's the thing if you don't ask you don't know Mm. that's right Mm. and we can find that information out from other sources as well Um, it might be enough just to read and understand this is what's involved Um, a simple blog um, midwife thinking has some great resources that we can access and she puts it into a format that is actually accessible to the lay person Um, and it's not specific to that person so we're not having to say yes I'm going to have an epidural this is what what decision I'm making I'm just seeking to understand what's involved in an epidural and when might be a good time to have it so that if that signpost comes up and they start to think I'm reaching the circumstances where I want to have an epidural they're asking for it before they reach crisis point before they reach that point where they're so uncomfortable because they've been trying to avoid an epidural and then they are defeated and then they it is just cruel at that point to not give them the epidural 
And so then they're, they're suffering unnecessarily rather than feeling ownership and direction in their birth. They're really just being dragged along. So we often hear the term going with the flow. If we're going with the flow, whose flow is it? Are you on the conveyor belt being dragged along at the will of the, or at the mercy of the system? Or are you with the paddle deciding where you're going to go, knowing what the pathway is ahead, knowing the rapids are coming and what you need to do to be prepared for them? And, um, and this, this is really empowering to, to have that awareness of where you are. Uh, it's and like a map in the zoo where it says you are here. You know where you are at each point and you know what options are still available to you and which ones are no longer available. So if you've moved onto the epidural pathway, you will probably not be allowed to get into the bath again. So you can accept that in going down the epidural, there's an option that I don't have. Or in in going down the epidural pathway, there might be a timeline now upon you and if if it's just the epidural that you've had and no syntocin at at that point you might then understand that if you haven't birthed within a certain time frame or your contractions start to slow down they're going to start wanting to add syntocin into the mix you can understand what that looks like and be be prepared for it and that just being prepared in itself can help you relax and in relaxing, guess what happens? You birth better. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's quite doing all that thinking in advance allows you to switch off and slip into the cave, into the zone when the time comes. And I think that when we do birth with those options and choices all from ourselves and when we're on the other side of it and we're holding our baby, we can sit there and feel, you know, so incredibly proud of ourselves and I believe from the work that I do that a baby as it arrives into the world needs to be brought into the world with gratitude and receiving your baby with complete love and it's very difficult to do that when you're fully at the end in a traumatized state or complete depletion or and and for me also naturally I always talk about what does that look like on the other side? Like if you can't hold your baby, who's going to do that skin to skin and what's going to happen with that breastfeeding experience as well? Because that's also another huge part of birthing is then going straight into that lactation phase. Absolutely. So many birth plans only go as far as the point that the baby is out. So the the end point of many birth plans is, usually something like I want delayed cord clamping and skin to skin Um, but define delayed cord clamping some hospitals it's one minute so if you just say in your birth plan I want delayed cord clamping and they've clamped that cord at one minute you're oi we want a delayed cord clamping and they're yeah you got it we waited a minute you need to know that Uh, the definition of delayed cord clamping is on your terms. So you might need to be really specific and say, we're waiting 10 minutes or we're going to have a lotus birth. So we're not cutting the cord. We're not clamping the cord. And then you've got complete control of when that happens. So if you're not really sure, buy yourself as much time as possible and just say, we're not clamping. And then when you've had enough, then you can say, I'm ready you might discover, oh, I'm actually really comfortable with the placenta being in a bucket next to us. Um, let's do it. Let's do the lotus, the lotus thing. And um, your options are still open at that point. And then you can decide when, when to move away from that. Um, the skin to skin also is an assumption for many people because standard procedure might be that, yep, you can have your skin to skin after We've done all this stuff over here. And there's that injection for syntocin and that, that third stage injection, which is standard procedure. It's still a consent point, but often that injection is in your thigh or through your drip before you even know what's going on. And so when we have a better picture of what third stage is going to look like, third stage being the point where the placenta is being born, rather than any textbook meaning of stages. Again, midwife thinking tells us 
all about the nonsense that stages are. Very good resource. But if we know that at that point in time, there's a lot of people hovering. There's a lot of activity at that point. Are we prepared for that? Who's who? What are they doing? What is their purpose? What is the standard procedure in that location? Because if we assume we're going to have that golden hour of beautiful halo, perfect birth, but our standard procedure in that hospital is an awful lot of hovering and hands going everywhere, your baby's introduction into the world is like being at a rock concert in the mosh pit. Like that's, <laughs> you know, is that what you want? How do you create um, the atmosphere that you want in that space and understanding what it looks like as, um, as a default is your, is your starting point. And if you don't want that default, what do you have to do to create the right atmosphere? And for some people, that changes their decision for where they're going to locate that birth. Hmm, actually, that's not going to work for me. Let's start looking at home birth midwives, or maybe I can change to a different uh, model of care. There's 11 different models of care. And for most women, like myself, I assumed I was going to go to the hospital and be allocated a midwife. That, that just doesn't happen. That, that, that is not a thing. <laughs> so, but most women, first-time mums, assume that that's what will happen. Mm. So, yeah, definitely get a realistic expectation. So how can, um, how can people understand what mapping is and, and sort of give a little bit of back end as to what do you do to help people to prepare for their birth? So the, the book that I wrote, which is called The Birth Map, is designed for um, couples to be able to use independently if they need to. So for some couples, that would be enough to pick up the book and follow the um, sort of the guides in the book, asking the questions and putting it together for themselves. But throughout the book, it also suggests if you're having trouble, maybe you would like to consider a doula um, or private childbirth education not the hospital-based education that gives us some really good clues on what the defaults are but private education gives us some really good tips on how to manage contractions or surges or you know you get new language you get reframing of what to expect that you can then take that that power into um, into the system with you or indeed change to a different location once you know more so the whole the whole process of that book it might be the first time they've even heard about doulas it might be the first time that they've realized that there's different models of care because once we're on the conveyor belt it's usually the the gp that's the gatekeeper the first question they might ask is do you have private health insurance if the answer is yes here's the private obstetrician if the answer is no here's the public hospital and that's as much um, direction as you get. And you might be 20 weeks in before you realise that there's a birth centre. And sorry, it's too late because there's no, you, you, can't, you can't book in that late. Um, and then the option of a home birth at five, six, seven plus thousand dollars might not, might not be realistic in the circumstances for that family. So our options um, are, are limited by finances. And is, is that really fair in a system that um, where women are as diverse, uh, there's as many different ways to birth as there are women entering the system? Why is there not public-funded home birth as a default, um, but public-funded home birth without strings? How good would that be? Mm. <laughs> there's a fantasy if ever can you we heard dream? one. Yeah, can we dream really? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just, yeah, this is such a, I love having this conversation with you and I really hope that those of you who are listening are really taking in how Catherine is explaining things that you do have options, you do have choice, you just need to know what questions to ask and that's exactly what the birth map book can help you do and guide you. You know, if you can't attend a childbirth education course or um, have a doula that 
at least start with sitting down and really having a conversation with your birth partner, whoever it is that's going to be supporting you about what do you want and how are you going to really create this map to understand what your options are so that when you go and have your antenatal appointments, you're not just going in and they're just doing blood blood pressure check. Yep, check, check, check. Okay, you're good. Do you have any questions? And you sit there and go, no which it and this is kind of what I see also within my you know once my clients go through I actually had a mother last night I finished off a course last night and this um mum was like oh, I had an appointment with my with my obstetrician um yesterday and the obstetrician was like you've done your birth class haven't you because she said <laughs> I came in with all of these questions and I was like yes that's exactly what I want and that's what the Hypnobirthing Australia program is about, it's not telling you how you should birth. It's what I want to do and what I'm really now guided to do is to stimulate those questions within yourself about what you want Mm -hmm. and what are the paths that you can take to achieve the birth that you want and that you deserve. And Mm -hmm. it's just so beautiful to see these parents like, because I really feel like there, there are, they are questioning, but they just feel then that they can't, when they get into their appointments, they can't actually ask the question. It's like, mm. no, you need to ask the questions. Please write them down. Be prepared for your appointments before you go in. Sit down and write the questions out that you really want to know the answers to. And if you don't feel like you're getting it from your medical caregiver, that's where you need to take that initiative and take that back, that responsibility to somehow find out the information for yourself and it's out there it is out there so um I could talk to you for hours (laughs) um Catherine so if people buy the book and they love it but they still want to work with you more is there a way that that someone could could get hold of you and do some other work with you uh Yes and no. Um, time <laughs> is limited. So one, one-on-one is a little bit selective. Um, but what I have been doing is training, as Shari has done, training mm. other doulas and birth educators around Australia and globally as well through the online training to be able to help parents do a one-on-one birth map or incorporate it into their courses so that they can replace any talk about birth plans with birth maps. And so we're seeing a lot of of education starting to change to reframe that planning process as a mapping mapping process, which in in itself, the word map is, is powerful because it does give us this vision of pathways and a journey and a way that we're moving through. So what I'm actually um, in the process of doing for parents is um, I've signed up to a PhD to test this process. (laughs) So anyone um, at this stage, if you were to be falling pregnant around Christmas time, you would be um, falling into the eligibility category to do a guided process where you'll get a copy of the book and you'll be working through the process in your pregnancy um, so that we can really put this through its paces and evaluate it as a potential way of embedding this into the system. So what I, the questions I want to ask is how is this working for you, in what circumstances and why, so that we can try and create a process for all women so that the first thing that they receive when they enter the system is the means to make their own decisions. How amazing would that be? Mm. But I do have to evaluate it properly before policy will pay attention. And then, of course, it depends on what comes out in the evaluation. But my hypothesis, based on the anecdotal information so far, the hypothesis is that this is an incredibly powerful tool and the main purpose of the PhD is to see is the book enough or do women need the support of the doula and the childbirth education so that we can put together a really strong picture of which women need which types of support and the level of support so that we can make sure that we're channeling women towards the support that they need because so many women are slipping through simply because they don't know what kind of support is available to them. And that's a real disservice 
that society is doing to to women and setting them off into motherhood feeling already on the back foot so my dear just a small thing changing the world but hey (laughs) gotta start somewhere so powerful (laughs) well we're right behind you on that yeah (laughs) and we'll put all of your details and where they can purchase the book um, in the show notes below. But I just want to take this moment to thank you Mm. for the work that you're doing. You know, this, the cartography you've created the map, like it's, I I love it. And I'm, I'm one of you, I want to be one of your biggest supporters and we are so grateful that you've taken the time to share this. And I think this is up there as one of probably like the best interviews. I've loved it. Yeah. I've loved every moment. Thank you. Thank you so much. Catherine. Pioneering the way forward. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and that it's helped you on your own journey. We would love it if you would subscribe and leave us a review. To learn more about our individual online or face-to-face courses or be mentored by us for your own birth, please see our show notes for the links to our programs.